0: Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. It was the burglary that brought down President Richard Nixon. Now, more than 43 years after the Watergate break in, it turns out there's more to this story. A key Nixon aide is revealing secrets from previously unknown White House files that he had squirreled away. And one of the reporters who broke the original case wide open has just put those secrets into print as David Martin will report in our cover story. Four decades after Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace, a new trove of documents kept hidden all these years by one of his closest aides, Alexander Butterfield. Some of those uh, documents are classified top secret. How did you just walk
1: away with them from the White House? It was easy. I just walked away with them.
0: And gave them to Bob Woodward, of all people. The reporter who helped bring down the president.
2: I just dove right into him.
0: Ahead on Sunday morning. Watergate. There's more to the story. You hear the applause. Forget the old saying that the doctor is in. When it comes to one PhD in psychology, it's more accurate to say the doctor is on. On TV, that is. This morning, Tracy Smith will profile Dr. Phil.
3: He's the nation's number one TV doctor, and he's been telling it like it is for the better part of 20 years.
4: Did you drink this morning? No. Because I smell alcohol on you. Oh, do you? Yes. Wow.
3: Did anybody ever say to you, tone it down?
4: 100,000 times.
3: And you said?
4: I'm not that guy.
3: We'll make a house call on Dr. Phil, ahead on Sunday morning.
0: We have a session of questions and answers this morning with Charles Koch the billionaire and donor to political causes. Anthony Mason is our man with the questions.
5: One of the most successful businessmen in the world, conservative billionaire Charles Koch is also one of the most vilified men in American politics.
6: Like Harry Truman said, if you can't stand the heat, don't go in the kitchen. But it's got to
5: be unnerving
6: on some level. I'm used to it.
5: Later on Sunday morning, in his first in-depth TV interview, Charles Koch on business and politics and the death threats he now gets every day. Then
0: it's on to a battle experts are waging against an invasion. Marley Hall takes us to the front lines.
7: The tranquil coral reefs of the Atlantic hide many treasures and a looming menace, the lionfish.
8: The numbers are just escalating out of control.
7: An undersea epidemic and a tasty solution. Ahead on Sunday morning, we're under the sea hunting the dangerous but delicious lionfish.
0: Seth Doan gives us a look inside North Korea. Steve Hartman salutes the fathers of the bride and more. Ahead. Lionfish, a species with bite. But first, we head to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: North Korea pulled out all the stops to mark its 70th anniversary this weekend, and its communist leaders invited company, including Seth Dole, who files this Sunday Journal.
10: Well, they may be the most secretive country on Earth, but they sure know how to put on a show. This was Saturday night's torch parade, featuring tens of thousands of people running in sync with real-life torches through the spitting rain on slippery Kim Il-sung Square we watched mesmerized. Also watching was Kim Jong-un, North Korea's 30-something ruler who had quite a day of parades. Earlier Saturday, he presided over perhaps the biggest ever ceremonial display of military might in modern North Korean history. One of the things that you can't quite appreciate when you see this on television is with all of this goose stepping, while you're standing here, the ground is shaking. This was saber-rattling on a grand scale, and Kim made it clear in a speech Saturday that America should take note. Kim called the U.S. a tyrant and said the DPRK was ready to defend itself if provoked. After the parade, this 36-year-old railway worker told us seeing Kim Jong-un in person for the first time gave her butterflies. And, she added, she felt safe seeing the massive show of force. I'm an American. What do you think about that? I didn't know you were an American, she giggled. You're not as evil as what I've read about in books. Well, it is rare for Americans, even more so for American journalists, to be granted access. The price of admission for foreign journalists entering North Korea is that the government decides exactly what you see. We're taken to tourist sites with absolutely no news value, and to subway stations built decades ago. Though even here, amid the out-of-date details, you glimpse just how significant the government's role is in everyday life, be it leaders' pictures on subway cars or even on pins. As Americans, we hear that life in North Korea is difficult. Does it feel that way to you? No, we're living a really happy life, Cho chul Young said. There's no mafia here. There's no burglary here. There is a strong government. At least that's what they wanted us to see. In this carefully stage-managed production, it can be hard to tell when the show begins and when it ends. So after the spectacle of this weekend's massive military parade, there was something almost refreshing about seeing what came next. Picking up the trash. Now that at least seemed real.
1: I was aware of listening devices. Coming up, witness
0: to history.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Hard as it may be to believe after all this time, there is still more to the story of President Richard Nixon and Watergate. And equally hard to believe, it is one of the men who was closest to Nixon, Alexander Butterfield, who's letting the secrets out. Our cover story is reported now by David Martin. Subcommittee will come to order. It was the biggest bombshell of the biggest political scandal
1: in American history. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the president? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir.
0: White House aide Alexander Butterfield revealing the existence of
2: the White House taping system to the Senate Watergate Committee. When Butterfield gave that dramatic testimony in July 1973, it it was a pivot point in Watergate. Reporter Bob Woodward, who along with Carl
0: Bernstein famously exposed the machinations of the Nixon White House, had tried and failed to interview Butterfield. So he passed the name on to the Watergate Committee. DO YOU THINK THE TAPES WOULD HAVE EVER BEEN REVEALED HAD IT NOT BEEN FOR BUTTERFIELD? I THINK THEY PROBABLY WOULD NOT HAVE. TURNS OUT, BUTTERFIELD WAS SITTING ON A LOT MORE SECRETS, 20 BOXES FULL OF THEM.
1: THIS IS THE YEAR 1971, AND EACH OF THESE IS A MONTH.
0: WHICH, TWO YEARS AGO, HE TURNED OVER TO WOODWARD. DID YOU EVER, IN YOUR WILDEST DREAMS, THINK THAT YOU WOULD ONE DAY BE COLLABORATING WITH BOB WOODWARD, OF
1: ALL PEOPLE? No, not at all.
0: So what did you think when you walk into his apartment and you see those 20 boxes? I thought, wow,
2: let's start looking.
0: The result is The Last of the President's Men, published by Simon & Schuster, a division of CBS. In addition to the documents, Woodward spent 40 hours interviewing Butterfield, who for three years occupied the office next to the president's.
1: First one to see him every day, last person to see him every night, attending to all of the immediate needs.
0: When Butterfield left, he took his files with him. Some of those uh, documents are classified top secret. How did you just walk away with them from the White House?
1: It was easy. I just walked away with them. Oh, I did the wrong thing. No one's supposed to do that. But I felt, to tell you the truth, that... Those papers were safer with me than with anyone. I'd been around classified dot. That's no excuse, but I'm saying I wasn't going to show these to the wrong person, and I was going to take good care of them.
0: One top-secret document reveals Nixon's candid, handwritten opinion of the bombing of Vietnam. An angry scrawl across a report from his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. We have had 10 years of total control of the air in Laos and Vietnam. The result zilch and, and just the day before to nixon told dan rather of cbs news United exactly United the opposite
2: the results have been very very effective
0: but surely uh, nixon was not the first and won't be the last president to
2: privately say things he would never say in public yeah but the level of contradiction and the depth of the fraud
0: According to Woodward's research, Nixon had already ordered the military to drop nearly three million tons of bombs and would order another million dropped in the year after the zilch
2: memo. It sends you to, into your heart and soul about, you know, what are we doing? How did this happen? Uh, How could we have been led this way? It takes the concept of military leadership by a president turns it on its head. Another document,
0: this one in Butterfield's handwriting, details Nixon's reaction to the My Lai Massacre in which 504 Vietnamese civilians were slaughtered by American GIs. Here's just one quote of what you wrote down. Get backgrounds of all involved, all must be exposed. Discredit witnesses.
1: Yeah, see, discredit, that rings a bell. We went to great lengths to discredit people all the time.
0: Butterfield wrote one memo about the possible left-wing affiliations of Ronald Ridnauer, the soldier who first blew the whistle on me and another about Seymour Hersh, the reporter who broke the story. According to the memo, Hersh received a $1,000 grant from the Edgar B. Stern Family Fund, which is clearly left-wing and anti-administration. Another vulnerable spot, according to Butterfield's notes, is the possible involvement of a lib Jew. So if the guy was a liberal Jew, that was material with which to exp- to discredit somebody?
1: Yeah, you're, you're asking me things that are very difficult to explain mm. about a very complicated man.
0: A president who, on a Christmas Eve tour of the old executive office
2: building next to the White House, made a discovery that sparked a witch hunt some of the staff people, bureaucrats, the civil servants, uh, had pictures of John F. Kennedy on their desks or on the wall. Nixon said we have to get rid of that infestation as if it was some sort of disease that somebody would have a picture of JFK in their office.
0: What were you supposed to do about these Pictures of other presidents on the walls. Get them all taken down. Get them all taken down.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. He made that express order.
0: In particular, White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman told Butterfield, The president would like you to find out who the woman is who has the two Kennedy pictures, adding, He asks about it once a week at least. Butterfield reported back that the CIA, Secret Service, and FBI, even the House Committee on Un American Activities, All found the woman a civil servant named edna rosenberg was a completely
2: loyal american what's surprising as you go through all of this is the amount of energy that was devoted to uh, these kind of maneuvers this was a subversion of what the job of the presidency is all of it documented in butterfield's files that's to haldeman this is to the treasury secretary. This is to the social secretary for the White House.
0: They really are sort of a, a record of what the president is, is thinking about on, on any given day. Yeah. And some of them, at least 40 years after, seem very, very strange.
1: Yes, they do. Did they, they, do. Did they,
0: they do. seem strange at the time?
1: Uh, <laughs>
0: in this strange environment, no. Nothing, of course, was stranger than the break-in at Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate, that third-rate burglary which brought down the president. Butterfield was not in on it, but he knew about the taping system, which could answer that famous question, what did the president know, and when did he know it?
1: Listen, the last thing I wanted to do is be the person that gave away the secret, because Haldeman and I had told the president we would never tell
0: but then a retired FBI agent named Donald Sanders, a member of the Watergate Committee staff, wound up an otherwise routine interview by asking exactly the right question. You remember the question?
1: Exactly. How did it go? Was there ever any other listening device in the Oval Office? That was, that was the, and I said, I think I said, my exact. I'm sorry you asked that question.
0: And history flips right there.
1: I knew what I was saying, getting into. I really knew what it meant.
0: When you look back at it now, would you have done anything differently in the way you handled that explosive secret of the taping system?
1: No, I thought of that a lot. I bet. I regret absolutely nothing. I didn't do everything right, but I satisfied myself that I didn't tell a lie. It was,
0: of course, the tapes that revealed the president had obstructed justice by ordering the cover up of the Watergate break in. Nixon was forced to resign, and Butterfield faded
1: into retirement in California. This is that meeting that presidents have just before they go up to, to the Capitol to be sworn in as the new president.
0: But now he's back to teach us all one of the basic lessons of journalism. There is always more to the story. There's the
2: president waving goodbye. you hear the applause?
0: Next, how Eleanor Roosevelt changed everything.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. October 11th, 1884, 131 years ago today. The day Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was born in New York City. A niece of Theodore Roosevelt, Eleanor married her distant cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in 1905. (laughs) Following the 1932 election, the couple moved into the White House, where Eleanor transformed the role of First Lady. She traveled the country to see the misery of the Great Depression firsthand. Improving the health of our children. And she openly expressed her personal views at press conferences and in a daily newspaper column. Following her husband's death in 1945, Eleanor Roosevelt soldiered on as a tireless advocate for the United Nations and other causes. All of which led Edward R. Morrow to pose this question to her on the CBS program Person to Person in 1954. (laughs) Why do you work so hard?
7: What else would I do? I live alone and uh... My children are all busy and all have lives of their own. I wouldn't want them to be worrying about mother having nothing to do.
0: No one ever had reason to worry that Eleanor Roosevelt would have nothing to do. She worked tirelessly almost to the very day of her death in 1962 at the age of 78.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: These prickly little creatures are lionfish, and there are plenty more like them out in the Atlantic, the spearheads of an invasion. Wally Hall takes us under the sea.
7: The Atlantic's coral reefs bustle with marine life, natural paradises filled with creatures of all colors, shapes, and sizes, including the lionfish. But this species is far from its native habitat. In fact, it's a sign of troubled waters.
8: A lionfish is a beautiful, wonderful, ornate reef fish. It's native to the Indo-Pacific Ocean. And now in these oceans, we have lionfish, which don't belong, swimming all over our reef areas.
7: From scales to tails, Lad Aiken studies lionfish for the Reef Environmental Education Foundation. How did they get here?
8: Well, they're super popular in aquariums. And just like we
7: see with other things, people sometimes set their pets free. And soon a few abandoned pets started multiplying. A single lionfish can produce two million eggs a year. And with no natural predator in the Atlantic, there's plenty of this fish in the sea. Year after year, their numbers keep growing and growing. Lionfish are always on the hunt for their next meal, gulping down whatever they can find. Many of them the young of fish we eat, like grouper and Snapper.
8: We could see extinctions of species. We could see reductions in populations of species we rely on economically, and those are worst-case scenarios. You guys are removing a lot of lionfish from these surrounding waters. I'm a best-case scenario kind of guy, and I see that we are engaging a lot of people right now.
7: It's a great event. That's mainly through what Aikens calls derbies. I think we should hand out some award money and prizes competitions across the U.S. and Caribbean for scuba divers to kill as many lionfish as they can. The goal is to leave no lionfish behind. Here I come. For a better look at a derby near Fort Lauderdale,
11: A-frame back! All
7: back! we went underwater with Project Baseline.
2: Prepare to dive.
7: It's a non-profit organization that's documenting the conditions of the world's oceans.
11: Four. Topside Nemo reporting. My life support
5: systems are okay and my vents are secured.
7: Co-founder Robert Carmichael took us to a shipwreck 120 feet down where lionfish like to feed.
1: There they are. Come oh. the divers now. Oh yeah.
7: OK, maybe maybe they can snag that lionfish over there. Lionfish can't be baited, trapped, or trawled. So the Derby scuba divers must spear them one by one, exercising patience and caution to avoid their venomous spines. To prevent painful, though not deadly, stings, they place the fish in a plastic tube known as a zookeeper. Is it scary, do you think? for the divers to come face to face
5: with the lionfish? Uh, They don't really attack you, it's just the only risk you
11: really run is if you mishandle the lionfish.
7: Which is exactly what happened to diver Patrick Peacock. You got stung today.
2: I did. I wasn't careful. He came free and he
10: poked me and I had to end the dive.
7: What did it feel like?
10: It feels like a wasp times 10.
9: The venom is contained in the entire length of the spine.
7: But cut off those spines as they did at the derby.
5: And you can handle it just like any other
7: fish. And lionfish go from malicious to delicious. A little bit of celery. Really? Lionfish ceviche, anyone?
10: It's good.
7: Some of that day's catch was sent here to Norman's Key, a Caribbean restaurant in New York City. Since lionfish must be killed one at a time, it's expensive. And this is one of the few restaurants serving it.
11: We're not making any money on the fish, that's for sure.
7: Owner Ryan Chadwick sells the fish for around $26 a plate, less than what it costs.
8: It's more about helping the ecosystem and doing something different.
7: So this is not about money for you.
8: Not this, no.
7: And as for the taste,
8: it's a white, flaky, buttery fish. This version is actually the the jerk lionfish. So you'll have a little a little heat, a little spice.
7: And this is me spearing a lionfish. Yes,
11: this is with your a spe- fork. With a fork.
7: With the fish on a plate. That's right. Okay. Oh wow, that is really good. What do you think? I love it. It's actually very similar to snapper. Which makes Lad Aikens hope that maybe we can eat our way out of this problem.
8: I think we have a lot of examples of eating through fish stocks. Here's a fish that needs to be controlled. And if we can provide a culinary value, I think we can impact the lionfish population just through removal for consumption.
7: That sounds it, pretty good to it's me. It's a
8: win-win for everybody, <laughs> except the lionfish.
7: If you bring your wallet and a sense of adventure.
8: What I proceed, enjoy, here, cool, cheers.
5: Coming up, people out there who think what you're trying to do is essentially buy power.
6: But what I want is a system where there isn't as much centralized power. An interview with Charles Koch.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
7: It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Charles Koch is
0: a billionaire many times over and a much-discussed figure in the world of business and political funding. This morning, he's making a rare television appearance, answering questions from
5: our Anthony Mace. When Charles Koch took over the family business nearly half a century ago, he had a vision for the oil company that his father founded. I worked
6: out, okay. how much can we grow over a period of time, and projected that out through my life. And two years ago, we we were 70 times that amount.
5: Koch Industries, headquartered in a sprawling glass and granite campus in Wichita, is now the second largest private company in the country. With more than 100,000 employees worldwide, the conglomerate refines up to 600,000 barrels of oil a day and produces everything from stainmaster carpets to electronic components for smartphones. Charles and his brother David own 84% of Coke Industries. Forbes estimates their net worth at nearly $43 billion each. But the sixth wealthiest man in the world still gets his lunch every day at the company cafeteria, although it's a bit more challenging after recent foot surgery. The 79-year-old CEO is at his desk each morning at 7.15 a.m., under the watchful eye of the family patriarch. So this is your dad here, Yes, That's yeah? my dad, yeah. Fred Koch made his first fortune building refineries for Stalin's Soviet Union and became a fervent anti-communist.
6: It may be a, either a blessing or a curse.
5: In his office, Charles a keeps a framed letter Fred wrote to his first two sons when he took out an insurance policy for them.
6: If you choose to let them, this money destroy your initiative and independence, then it will be a curse to you, and my action in giving it to you will have been a mistake. So that's the way he was.
5: Koch also inherited his father's distrust of big government. Of
2: your power.
5: And he's used his fortune to bankroll a network of conservative groups that helped give birth to the Tea Party movement. That's made this billionaire and his brother among the most vilified men in American politics.
6: There's a cartoon you might enjoy.
5: (laughs) Run, everybody. Run for your life. It's them. It's the Koch brothers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. The Koch brothers and other moneyed interests are influencing the political process for their own benefit.
5: Among Democrats, like Senator Harry Reid... Coke has become a code word for corporate villainy.
1: They're trying to buy America, and it's time that the American people spoke out against this terrible dishonesty of these two brothers. who Are about as un-American as anyone that I can imagine.
5: Some 53,000 attack ads out-of-state oil billionaires mentioned the Coke brothers in the last election cycle.
1: If the Cokes and Cassidy win, Louisiana
6: loses. Like Harry Truman said, if you can't stand the heat, don't go in the kitchen.
5: But it's got to be unnerving on some level.
6: I knew I'd get heat, but I didn't know it'd be this vicious and this dishonest.
5: We're helping farmers feed the world. But Coke's now trying to give the family name an image makeover. Families worldwide rely on the daily essentials we help make. The company has launched a national ad campaign. We are Coke. And in a new book, Good Profit. Koch lays out the market-based management philosophy that drove his company's phenomenal success and writes about the values that drive him personally and politically. One of four Koch brothers, Charles went to MIT like his father, but not before bouncing around eight different schools. What would you say this sort of source of your rebelliousness was?
6: I'm kind of a contrarian, as you probably know from all the different things I do, I do things differently than other people. What are you doing that for? You're just creating trouble for yourself.
5: The notoriously private billionaire agreed to his first in-depth TV interview at his Wichita home. So what's it like living with this guy?
11: Interesting.
5: <laughs> where we also met Liz, his wife of 42 years. Why are you the one brother still in Wichita?
6: Because my my father said, either come back to run the company or I'm going to sell it. And none of the others wanted to come back.
3: Yeah, but that's not the whole reason. The real reason, you could have moved many times. You could have moved Coke Industries anywhere in the world you wanted to. But this is a great place for raising children and running a business business with values.
5: It was while he and Liz were building their house here in 1973 that Koch confronted his first major crisis as CEO, the Arab oil embargo. I thought we might go broke. You thought you might go bankrupt? Bankrupt. Was that the scariest time for the company? Well,
6: that and, uh, and the scariest for me when we had the takeover attempt by the stockholders or some in my family, and uh, that was pretty scary. And all the lawsuits that followed it, that was pretty depressing.
5: In the early 80s, the Koch family broke into open civil war when Bill and Fred Jr. challenged their brothers for control of Koch Industries. The battle would drag on for nearly two decades and while Charles and David prevailed, Charles says the settlement prevents him from talking about it. To spread his free market philosophy, in the 70s, Koch co-founded the libertarian think tank the Cato Institute to advocate for a radically smaller government with reduced regulation and no subsidies. But during the administration of President George W. Bush, the Kochs decided to get more active.
6: He's a fine person, I'm I'm sure he meant well. Then he, he grew government more than just about any president before him, and he got us in counterproductive wars. So that's when I decided we needed to get into politics.
5: The Koch brothers have helped fund a complex network of political action committees and advocacy groups, many of them tax-exempt so donors don't have to be disclosed. The network, which now rivals the Republican National Committee in its financial clout, will spend 300 million dollars in the next election year. Do you think it's good for the political system that so much, what's called dark money, is flowing into the process now.
6: Well, first of all, my uh, what I give isn't dark. Like what I give to politically, that that's all reported. It's either to PACs or to the candidates, and what I give to my foundations is 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 all public information. But a lot of our donors don't want to take the kind of abuse that that I do. They don't want these attacks, they don't want the death threats. So they aren't going to participate if they have to have their names associated with it.
5: But do you think it's healthy for the system that so much money is coming out of a relatively small group of people?
6: Well, I yeah, listen, if I didn't think it was healthy or fair, I wouldn't do it because what what we're after is to fight against special interests.
5: Well, some people would look at you and say you're a special interest.
6: Yeah, but my 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 interest is is just as it's been in business is is what will help people improve their lives and to get rid of these special interests. That's the whole thing that drives me.
5: There are people out there who think what you're trying to do is essentially buy power.
6: But 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 I I don't what I want is a system where there isn't as much centralized power, where it's dis- dispersed to the people. And that's everything I advocate points in that direction.
5: coke backed groups were among the early donors to the Tea Party movement. What do you think of the Tea Party?
6: Well, I think there's some good things and bad things. To the extent the Tea Party is working to keep us from having a financial disaster, then they're great. If they're doing other things that are, that are limiting people's choice and opportunity, then they're not.
5: A lot of the groups that you've supported have essentially provided financial fertilizer for the Tea Party. Would you agree with that? Yes,
6: yes. But that, listen, if we had to agree with everything a group or a person stood for, we would never do anything.
5: Some of the Koch's causes might surprise you. Koch Industries donated $25 million to the United Negro College Fund. The Cokes have now joined the White House in calling for criminal justice reform to reduce prison sentences for nonviolent offenders.
4: You've got the NAACP and the Koch brothers. No, you got to give them credit.
5: Did you ever think you'd be working with the Obama administration on anything?
6: Yeah. Well, I'm like, I am I feel the way Frederick Douglass did. He, he said, I'll work with anyone to do good and no one to
5: do harm. You don't really consider yourself a Republican?
6: Not at all. No, I consider myself a classical liberal. The way I look at it, the Democrats are taking us at, a, at about 100 miles an hour over the financial cliff and, and towards this two-tiered society, and the Republicans are taking us there at 70 miles an hour.
5: Lesser of two evils?
6: Well, I I don't like to put it that way. I I would say, uh, uh, yeah, less unproductive.
5: (laughs) Five Republican presidential candidates, including Scott Walker, who since dropped out, were invited to the Koch brothers' most recent donor meeting in August. Donald Trump, who was not on the guest list, tweeted, I wish good luck to all the Republican candidates that traveled to California to beg for money, etc., from the Koch brothers, adding the word puppets with a question mark. Are you intending to support a candidate for president?
6: Well, it, it depends.
5: If Donald Trump got the nomination, I, would you support him?
6: I made a vow, I'm not going to talk about individuals because if I said, just like David said, he liked Walker, so now all the press is Boy, we put all this money behind Walker and and he had to drop out. We didn't put a penny. David said he liked him.
5: Were you surprised Walker's candidacy didn't resonate in any way? Uh,
6: Well, I I thought it would resonate better, but but, uh, he wasn't a very good campaigner. So you may agree with us on a number of issues, but if you're presenting him in a way that doesn't resonate, that doesn't do any good. So we can't support you. That's... We're not I- interested in, in attacking windmills.
5: But Charles Koch is not about to abandon the fight. Behind that genial Midwestern manner is a billionaire who sticks to his guns. You've effectively made yourself a target.
6: Yeah, I, got, I, I got, get a lot of death threats. And I'm now on Al-Qaeda's hit list too. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really getting in the big time. Gets <laughs> well, pretty scary.
5: That hasn't stopped you.
6: No, I, I, I decided long ago I'd, I'd rather die for something than live for nothing.
0: And ahead right now on Sunday morning.
1: We're doing something from Bazile.
0: Chef Paul Prudhomme's recipe for success. It happened this past week. The loss of Cajun food's greatest yes. champion. Now that's what I call a pot of jambalaya. Celebrity chef and restaurateur Paul Prudhomme died on Thursday of an undisclosed illness. The youngest of 13 children, Prudhomme helped his mother in the kitchen from an early age. And after years of apprenticeship in other people's restaurants, he opened his own, K. Paul's Louisiana Kitchen, in 1979. The restaurant, with its innovative blend of spicy, down-home recipes, became a culinary landmark.
1: We're doing something from Bazile.
0: Through TV shows and cookbooks and personal appearances, Prudhomme devoted his life to making people happy, one mouth-watering dish at a time.
2: That's what Louisiana food does, and that's what Cajun food does. It creates excitement, and it creates emotion in you. You know that you've had a
9: great time.
0: Cajun chef Paul Prudhomme was 75. Just ahead
9: the happiest moment of my life walking down the aisle with both of them.
0: Father of the Bride, times two.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: A wedding with two fathers of the bride may not be a traditional affair, but it sure is a memorable one. Here's Steve Hartman.
11: For most of her life, 21-year-old Brittany Peck of Elyria, Ohio, felt caught in the middle, torn between two men she truly adored, her father, Todd Bachman, and her stepdad, Todd Sandrosky.
9: I felt like maybe I need to just, like... Pick? Yeah, basically. Yeah.
11: What a position to be in.
9: I know. It was really, really tough. I was in kindergarten.
11: This all began back when Brittany was six. Her parents split up, then got wrapped up in a bitter custody battle.
6: It was riddled with lawyers and courtrooms.
11: Her dad, a short haul truck driver, wanted custody and certainly had no interest in sharing his daughter with Brittany's new stepdad, who says the ill feelings were mutual. We did not get along, we tolerated each other. That's probably the best way to, to describe it. Over the years, things did improve slightly. They shared custody, and both men came to realize they were both pretty good fathers. But there was still a little tension in the air when last month, the two families got together for Brittany's wedding. Her biological father was supposed to walk her down the aisle, when all of a sudden he bolted to the front. I said, I'll be back. And that's when I walked down the aisle,
6: grabbed Todd and said, come on.
5: He said, you had just as much of a part of this and raising these kids as uh, as I did. He goes, it's, you're going to come and help me walk our daughter down the aisle.
11: Our so. daughter," he said. "Our daughter."
5: And that's when I lost it.
11: Hand in hand, they went back to get Brittany. Then arm in arm, they gave their daughter the wedding she always dreamed of.
9: It meant the world to me. It was the happiest moment of my life walking down the aisle with both of them. In the
11: presence of God. And parents and step parents are often at odds. But the wisest eventually realized that getting along isn't just best for the kids. It's best for them.
6: If that individual accepts your children and treats them as his own, how can you not have respect for somebody like that?
5: He invited me to be part of that day. And that's
10: something that can never be taken away. It'll always be there.
11: A little wedding day advice from the fathers of the bride. A consult with Dr. Phil is next.
9: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
4: You need help. You need treatment. I will make it a gift from me to you. That's the one and only Dr. Phil.
0: He's a doctor who is on on television year after year thanks to his gift for what he calls common sense talk Tracy Smith has our Sunday profile
3: for Phil McGraw and his wife Robin every show begins the same way with a walk together across the Paramount lot and a little ritual so what was that touching the thing oh. well, you know I, I
4: started the first time that has a thing sticking out that'll just rip your arm and so mm-hmm. when we walked by I was, I touched it the first day to keep her from tearing her arms. Don't <laughs> touch this. And the show went great.
3: 14 seasons in, The Dr. Phil Show is still going great. Let's do it. A good show, everybody. Here we go. This is a safe place to talk about hard things. Have a great show. Fueled by enthusiastic audiences, an endless parade of troubled guests. Can you walk? Apparently. And a host who knows how to put on a show.
4: You are a heroin addict, and you did heroin today, correct?
11: Really? Heroin?
4: Somebody asked me one time, he said, Dr. Phil, isn't what you do a lot of, a lot of it just entertainment? Clearly an attempt to be insulting. And my answer was, my God, I hope so. If it isn't, they won't watch. You are drunk in a bar at 1.30 in the morning fighting with a cop. That is not good mothering. You need help.
3: Is this an intervention? So how much is doctor and how much is showman?
4: It, it's one and the same. I mean, you don't, you don't have to be boring To be a doctor, there's so much doctor in Dr.
3: Phil, I drive my staff crazy. And though Phil McGraw is not a medical doctor, he does have a Ph.D. in psychology, saw patients, and was a licensed psychologist for many years. uh, uh...
4: You entered into a suicide pact. Yes. And tell me about the suicide pact, the agreement. She was going to kill herself, and and I would kill myself also.
3: What kind of therapist were you?
4: I was very direct, uh, just as I am now. I mean, I would tell people, look, I can talk to you every week for six months and tell you what I think at the end, or I can just tell you right now. (laughs) You know, there was some guy in there that was some arrogant with his wife. It doesn't take me six months to tell you that. I'll tell you today. (laughs) Why in the hell did you, would you, ever agree for your wife to become an escort
3: and this really was the seed of the dr phil show if you think about it, it's the same thing you're doing now well you know come on common
4: sense is not common enough is it
3: phil mcgraw first came to national attention in 1998 when as a courtroom psychologist he helped oprah winfrey win a lawsuit by texas cattlemen
4: and when you finally took your power back and said, I am who I am, and no plaintiff's lawyer's going to tell me I'm not, it was a snap.
3: Yeah, it was a snap. <laughs> when you first went on Oprah, did people immediately take to the tell it like it is, Phil way?
4: Some took to it and thought, wow, this guy is absolutely the second coming of common sense. And some thought, this guy's an absolute barbarian. I agreed with both of them.
7: What do you mean?
4: I'm not for everybody. That's why you got a remote control.
7: Dr. Phil is loading up the truck and moving to Beverly.
3: (laughs) After five years on Oprah, Dr. Phil got a show of his own. This is our first show. This is number one, Okay. Drawing millions of fans and a few critics.
4: Who's in the middle there?
3: It's Alana. You took her to
4: meet a registered sex offender. I made a mistake. People make mistakes. It's the cover-up and not the mistake that creates the biggest problem.
3: Is part of your show's popularity that it is, for lack of a better term, a freak show?
4: Um, Absolutely, unequivocally not. It's not even almost a freak show by any stretch of the imagination. And that is an absolute insult to the people that come on that show.
3: So you think the idea that people get off on seeing other people with problems is not really why people watch the show?
4: I absolutely know that's not why people watch the show.
3: What do you think they're tuning in for?
4: We are delivering common sense usable information to people's living rooms every day for free
3: his own life story could and has filled several books the only son of an alcoholic father who made life unpredictable at best
4: I'm walking home with some friends which was a rare thing for me we're walking up the street I get up there and it's my dad he's in his underwear laying on the driveway with his pillow, what do you do? You know, so you're embarrassed, of course. Were you angry? You know, I was not. I-, I can remember sitting back and looking at some of this stuff and thinking, these people are crazy. I had to have been mixed up at the hospital.
3: So could your family have been guests on the Dr. Phil show?
4: Uh, <laughs> it could have been a season. <laughs> and they'd probably say the same thing about me. What color are your shoes? They're pink. Yes, they're pink. <laughs>
3: The family Phil and Robin created, sons Jay and Jordan, daughter-in-law Erica, and grandchildren London and Avery are frequent guests on the Dr. Phil show, as proof positive that life is what you make it. That's
1: London not there.
2: Yes, it it is.
3: But Phil's tough love approach doesn't apply to the grandkids. Do you spoil your grandkids? I spoil them rotten. Isn't that something that Dr. Phil would counsel against? No, I no, don't think, you don't I, think no, so. No, <laughs> no, no. If they want popsicles for breakfast, go for it. Seems like Grandpa Phil is a softer guy than the one Robin met as a teenager. I was just a little bit surprised that he was so uh, quiet and so stern. Was that a challenge to you? So it was a challenge, <laughs> yes. So I thought, Wow. You're not very nice. (laughs) She set the ground rules early on. I will never be your patient. (laughs) And don't ever try to be my doctor. If I need a shrink, I'll go to the Yellow Pages. Because? I don't need you analyzing me and my behaviors. He went, gotcha. And he hasn't done it since? He's never done it since. And there's another thing he won't do. Do Do you play Scrabble with me ever? No. Okay, why?
4: Because you beat me like a...
3: That's right. (laughs) I do. I'm I'm like, I beat him every time he can't stand it. So how often do you play tennis? Dr. Phil's game is tennis. He had this court built in his yard before his house was even finished.
4: Seven, eight times a week. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah.
3: And he likes it much more than the other games so many doctors play. So
4: you ready to hit some balls? Sure. For me, golf is the hardest thing I've ever done because you can't get better by hustling. You can't get better by working harder. You just can't bear down, get a bigger hammer. And it takes finesse. I'm not necessarily a finesse guy.
3: And there you have it, from a guy who knows his strengths and weaknesses and always plays to win.
0: I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.